Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Fallon Chassel, and I'm your humble host for Undergraduates Unpublished. I'm live in the Loyola University School of Mass Communication sound booth, only a few steps away from Bobay Hall, where these incredible stories were written. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the stories. The Witch's Pit is a story by my classmate, Jordan Chauncey. Jordan and I had short story writing together a few semesters back when he wrote this story. I remember how incredibly powerful his storytelling was, and I asked Jordan if I could use his story for this podcast. Even if it was a little creepy to say, hey, I remember we took this class a year and a half ago, and you wrote the story, and I liked it a lot. (laughs) I hope you like his story a lot, too. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the story. The Witch's Pit by Jordan Chauncey Long before the witches moved behind the barn, before rain stopped falling, the peach farm was a destination. Families came from nearby counties just to walk through the orchard. Children ran under the trees on warm days while Matthias Brown told the parents about how he had inherited the farm from his father, who had inherited the farm from his father, and so on. For so many generations, Matt had lost count. The number changed with every tour, but the story was always the same. Mythical Grandpa Brown started the farm with a dozen trees and two acres of land, and over the years it had blossomed into the biggest peach farm operation in Campton County, with 600 acres of peach trees and another hundred of pecan trees, blueberry bushes, and twisting blackberry vines. The nuclear families would leave at the end of the day, their minivans laden down with plastic bags of peaches, a bucket or two of blueberries, and a paper bag of pecans, leaving Matt to smoke his cigarette and count the cash he had from overcharging for the produce falsely labeled as organic. That was years ago. Since the rain stopped, cicadas were the only visitors to the Browns family farms, incorporated, registered trademark, all rights reserved. It was the damnedest thing, the news said. No one could have predicted it. Over the course of that first year without rain, 200 climatologists killed themselves. News couldn't explain it either. Lorene would still have nothing to hear of it, still called it all that weather shit. She would wake up every morning before the sun crests the horizon, clunk around in the room above Matt's just loud enough to wake him up, and continue her clinking just long enough to keep him from falling back asleep. He laid awake and listened to his mother cross the creek floorboards above him until he heard the groaning as she knelt next to her bed. The gentle murmur of her praying to God for rain would lull him back to sleep for an hour, until the sun came up, and he had roused himself to tend to his dying trees and shriveled bushes and hopeless family legacy. He made himself one egg and one thin slice of sausage every morning. He ate it straight from the skillet and stared out at what used to be his favorite window in the house. When the rain stopped and the earth outside turned powdery, the foundation of the Browns' farmhouse had started to shift. One day, Matt woke up to find that the back door didn't close all the way anymore. Then Lorene said her bedroom windows were stuck shut. He no longer remembered when it was that he came down to find the plate of glass window in the kitchen cracked. 
He imagined it was about the time that James left, but then he attributed most of what went wrong to around the time James left. The rain might have stopped that month. Maybe that was when the cicadas came. Maybe that was the month that Campton declared itself a dry county. Maybe, he mused, that was also the month agave stopped growing down south, and they'd have to start selling tequila-flavored liquor in the county next over. After the scant breakfast, Mac toured the grounds. He looked for peaches in the trees, berries on the vine, any sign of life on the farm besides himself, Loreen, and a couple of dogs he put food out for, but never named. When the sun started to go down, he lit a cigarette and hiked to the mailbox to pick up the credit card bills. The government subsidy checks that kept the lights on but couldn't pay for their irrigation, and the offers from the real estate developers eager to snatch up the parcel of Great Grand Brown's peach farm, which Matt had been selling off to the highest bidder, 10 acres at a time, for the past five years. He flipped through the offers on the way back to the front door and hoped Grandpa would understand why he had to sell his peach trees for firewood and give his land to smiling vipers who flattened it for subdivisions so a bunch of middle-aged women popping Xanax could have their retirement homes in the country. Matt went home at the end of the day, made Lorene dinner, and crawled into bed. Sometimes he fell asleep as soon as he had the mattress. Others, he lay awake and thought about how times passed so slowly with no one around but Loreen, and how much he missed James and his stupid cat, how much he missed coming home to a bed that wasn't cold and empty, how much he missed tequila and the smell of peach blossoms. When he woke up one icy November night, long before Loreen's morning ritual commenced, he was more perplexed than anything. He struggled to place the sound outside his window, but all he could think of was the sound of cicada wings. He lay in bed, straining to hear, for minutes before he could place the sound. The dogs outside, pawing at the screen door. And past that, the sound of rain. He left out of bed without pausing to pull on a shirt and dashed to the kitchen in his briefs. The cracked window was streaked with rain. He rushed to the door and flung it open, and the three waiting dogs pushed him past the house. As the muddy bodies brushed past his bare knees, he heard himself, as from a distance, laughing out loud. The laughter turned to dry sobs of relief, then wet, hacking coughs then laughs again when he realized how hard it was after 20 years of smoking. He took a deep breath of the cold night air, inhaling the scent of wet earth and ozone that had missed it so much. He was wiping his eyes with the back of his hands and chuckling when he noticed the light behind the barn, flickering with an unmistakable glow of fire. He felt goosebumps rise on his arms and step back inside, put on his boots, grabbed the flashlight he kept by the door, and pulled a coat over his bare torso all while keeping his eyes on the light behind the barn. Matt crept up the hundred yards through the rain to the barn with his flashlight held in front of him like a weapon. He fought his instinct for every step, and the closer he got to the somehow cold light of the fire, the more he wanted to turn, run, burn the whole farm to the ground, and skip town that very night. But he pushed forward, until he was against the broad side of the barn, and all he had to do was take one more step to round the corner and face the fire. His heart pounded in his ears. He inhaled deeply and took the step. In front of him, three women sat in a circle around the fire, above which bubbled a kettle of water with the scent of lilacs and citrus wafting out of it. Each hummed a different tune, the click of knitting needles running constantly under it. Around them lay a mountain of yarn, crafted into impossibly long scarves and blankets made of silky, sticky-looking material. Matt tightened his grip on the flashlight and then chastised himself for it. There were just a few frail-looking women, he thought, 
just trying to knit a blanket for four or sixteen in peace. He took a step closer to them, and the rain stopped. The fire dimmed, and the three heads creaked towards him, slowly with jerky, stiff movements. The oldest-looking woman, a tiny, shriveled thing who looked like a strong wind could blow her to dust, peered at him with watery brown eyes. "'You must be Brown Family Incorporated,' she said. Her mouth took too long to open, and her words sounded chunky and unpracticed. When he paused, Matt thought he heard the groaning of trees, coming not from the nearby orchard, but from her wheezing breaths. "'We saw your sign.' "'Just Brown,' he said. Dread coiled in the pit of his stomach, like a water moccasin, but the steadiness of his own words surprised him. "'The family incorporated bit is just for the lawyers.' The three women stared at him. They looked similar, all had the same square jaw and sharp cheekbones. They must be related, he decided. Besides the ancient one, one of them looked Lorene's age, and the other maybe a little bit younger than him. Three generations of women, he figured, sitting in his yard, surrounded by their knitting. The kettle on the fire was beginning to sour. It smelled less like lilac and more like dishes left in the sink too long less like citrus and more like meat gone bad in the woods. Like pits of mud so old, no one knew, and so deep, no one could guess. We've lost our home, Brown, the old woman continued. It's flooded. Gone. The younger woman, the one who looked Lorene's age, continued far. We would like to make a deal, Brown. Matt's felt his stomach flip. A deal? I. His voice cracked and he took a moment to swallow before he continued. I don't know about a deal, miss. A business deal, not Lorene said quickly. Short term, nothing serious. The youngest, a thin, willowy woman with a delicate smile, raised her bright eyes to his. Let's just stay here. Let us stay here, just one night, and in return, she smiled weirdly and ran her hand down her body making sure to cover her breasts and draw her skirt tight across her hips. In return, let's say I'll make it worth your while? Her eyes twinkled in the dim of the fire. Oh, he felt the heat rise to his face as he caught the implication. No, ma'am, I don't, I, I mean, I appreciate the offer, I truly do, but I don't think, well, I mean, I'm just not interested in any favors, um, any sex favors. Not that I'm not interested in you in particular, I mean, I just ought to tell you I'm gay. He was stumbling over his words and it brought him back to his brief stint of time in college, to telling girls in bars that I don't dance, and really, no, and sorry, but you're just not my type. What? Not Lorene croaked? Her voices sounded strong moments before, but now it rasped like sandpaper. She sounded like a cat, puffed up and hissing. Matt shrugged in response. Not Lorene held up one thin finger to him and gave him a polite smile, before turning to the other two women. The three of them leaned in together and whispered for a few minutes, peering over each other's heads periodically to cast fugitive glances at Matt. He remembered while they whispered that he was hardly dressed, and once again he was embarrassed. He was going to excuse himself to grab a pair of pants from the farmhouse when the willowy woman spoke up. We have a new deal, Brown. An offer you'll like four more than our last. There was something fluttery in her voice, but not breathy, lighter than cicadas like the moths that spent the night slamming into his porch light, frying themselves and falling to the floor to collect in a pile with their brethren. Matt thought about saying no, 
but remembered how the rain had stopped when he saw them. He remembered how much he needed rain. He nodded, and the willowy woman continued. We see Brown Family Incorporated is suffering as much as our people from the changes in these past years. Matt decided not to ask who our people was. We will bring you rain, Brown, and rich soil. Your land will thrive if you can fulfill our small request. Do we have your attention? Matt heard himself say yes, they did. He heard himself say that they could ask for anything. Anything for this damn farm he hadn't asked for in the first place. First, the old woman said, her voice a little more than a groan, you will remove all iron from this property. Shit, I can't do that, Matt said. That house is ancient. That's nailed together with iron. I'd have to take the whole thing apart. The three women paused, leaned together, whispered among themselves. After a long minute, they sat back up. All right, we'll amend that request. All iron that may be removed without sacrificing the structural integrity or working order of the form must be removed from this property, the old woman croaked. Matt nodded. He decided to call her frog. Second, not Lorene said, you will allow us to stay on your property indefinitely. As long as we are here, your crops will flourish. When we leave, they will fail. Here? As in, in the house? My mom lives with me, and I don't know how kindly she'll take to y'all. The women took a brief conference before Not Lorene said, No. We would like the darkest part of the pecan grove, and we would like you to never bother our nest. Matt nodded and didn't ask about the word nest. The pecan grove they could easily have. Not even Lorene was praying for pecans anymore. Third, Willowy Woman said, We need a single lock of your hair. All right, he said. You want me to go and get a pair of scissors from the kitchen, or... Before he finished the thought, he felt wind rush past his right ear, and when he turned wide-eyed to Frog, she was holding a chunk of his dark hair in one gnarled hand and a pair of golden crane-shaped sewing scissors in the other. And we seal it with a kiss, Willie Woman said. Matt flushed. No, ma'am. I told you already. I'm not interested. You're very lovely, but I can't. He trailed off and stared past the Willie Woman's shoulder, unable to make eye contact with any of the three women. Brown, the young woman said, her voice low. She set down her knitting and pushed herself to her feet. She stopped in front of him, close enough that he could smell the scent of rain on her. I'm not saying you have to like it, but do you want the farm or not? He swallowed hard and shifted his weight from one foot to another. All right, he mumbled. She nodded. She had dropped the seduction act, which Matt thought he should thank her for. It was good to know neither of them was going to particularly enjoy it. It made it feel more like a business deal, and less like he was kissing someone for the first time since Jane was left. Her lips were soft. She was polite. It was not unpleasant, but Matt found when it was over that his fingers were frozen around the flashlight, and he couldn't feel his toes through his boots. The warm glow of excitement the deal had sparked in him was snuffed out by the kiss. He realized that he was wet, standing in the November cold, pantsless and shaking. He thanked Willowy Woman, thanked Frog, thanked Noth Lorene. They returned him tight-lipped smiles, and when he got back to the farmhouse and turned to look them over his shoulder, the strange glow of the fire was bobbing off in the direction of the pecan grove. Matt woke up the next morning with a cold. His head felt heavy and stuffy with muck. A fit of persistence, wet coughing hit him while he was frying his two sausage patties on the stove. 
He leaned over the sink and hacked until he felt something heavy dislodge from his lungs. He spat a mouthful of mud and Spanish moss into the sink, raised his head to the cracked kitchen window and the rain pouring outside, and wept. Creatives deserve to have creative freedom, not an editable template. Landing Lion's freeform canvas allows you to have full control over your brand, not partial control over pre-made templates like other website development platforms. Creating web pages shouldn't be hard. Check out Landing Lion to see how easy it could be. Lorene crowed through the rainy season, telling Matt over supper one night, I told you those climate men were damn fools. Told you that all we had to do was wait this one out. You're right, Ma, he said. He hadn't told her about the three women in the pecan grove or about spitting up swamp mud for weeks after they had arrived. But he hadn't told her when he was selling the land either. It was better this way, he thought. Better that she not know. Through a mouthful of spaghetti, Lorene continued. I bet that boy will feel like an idiot leaving you. We're going to have a proper harvest. Haven't seen a real peach in how long? Four years, he said absently. She laughed. A hearty laugh. The kind he hadn't heard since Dad died. Four years of peaches grown in test cubes. We're going to sell them real ones. We'll be rich, Maddie. Matt just nodded and smiled, all the while staring past her, out the window, to the pecan grove, where he knew the three women were waiting. We'll be rich, he repeated, as if in a dream. Rich? He was grateful to the three women, but he never wanted to check on them. He tried once, in early December, but when he got there, the trees were bundled with white silk, and walking under them, Matt had the strangest feeling that the canopy above him was moving. He could see the woman's fire at the other end of the pecan grove, but the ground became impassably marshy a few hundred feet from the light. He had turned back, deciding his company was unwanted. The women were as good as their word, though. In March, green shoots appeared on the trees. The grass, for the first time in a long time, grew green and healthy as the weather turned warm. Wildflowers sprung up behind the farmhouse, and air buzzed to the sound of bees, visitors long absent from the farm. In April, Matt woke to the tapping of his window. He rolled, bleary-eyed to his side, and found a raven pecking gently at his window. He groaned and slapped his hand against the glass, but the bird wouldn't move. It squawked, and then spoke in Frog's creaking voice. You ought to pay us a visit, Brown. There's business to discuss. No sooner had it finished speaking than it took the air in a flutter of blue-black feathers, and it was gone. Matt was only barely sure that it had really happened, and was still trying to sort it out when Lorene started screaming upstairs. The sound sent ice through his veins, and he jumped out of bed, slid out the door, and rushed up the stairs. Lorene, he called. Lorene, Mom, what's going on? He stopped in Lorene's doorway to see her standing in her nightgown, pointing out at her window frame, where a fat yellow spider had spun a web across the entire window, sending its massive shadow onto the floor at Lorene's feet. It was enormous, but Matt found himself staring past it and out the window. His peach trees were in bloom. Overnight, the long, barren trees had put forth heavy blossoms, so the branches bowed under their weight of the pink petals. Maddie, Lorene shrieked. Don't just stand there, boy. Kill it. She threw a slipper at her son, snapping him from his stance. Shit, Mama, I'm sorry, he mumbled. 
He stared at the spider and racked his brain for how he was going to kill such a massive beast. I'll, I'll figure something out. That afternoon, Matt pulled on his rubber boots and sat up for the pecan groan. Armed with a cookie tin, duct tape shut to keep the spider inside. The sound of its scuttling legs made him shiver in the warm air. But even with the monster in his arms, the day was beautiful. A robin sang lazily from somewhere to his right, and the day's light breeze carried the tune through the air along with the thick scent of peach blossoms. It had been so long since Matt had seen his own pecan trees that he barely recognized them. The silken webs had choked the life from them, leaving dead, hollow husks that came alive with the sound of skittering legs when he passed them. He clutched the cookie tin closer to his chest, although the deeper he got into the woods, the more light the spider webs above him blocked out, the more frantic the cookie tin spider became. He didn't know how long he was walking when he saw Frog, not Lorene, and the willowy woman. They sat, just as he had seen him last, in a circle around the fire, knitting. The air was still heavy around their camp, and none of them looked up when he approached. Their knitting had gotten longer and more spectacular, but Matt found himself staring hard at it, at the tiny live spiders used as ornaments throughout it, and at the cocooned animals wrapped in the knitting. His stomach lurched to the sides of some of the bundles, and it occurred to him that the spiders in the tin, whose body was easily the size of his hand, ran on the small side. He stood silently between Frog and Willowy Woman for a while, before he cleared his throat. They made no indication that they had heard him. I, um, got your bird, he said finally. Did you like it? Not Lorene asked. Yes, ma'am, it was a fine bird. Not sure how you did that talking trick, though. That's need to know, Willowy Woman said with a smile. I got, I also got your, well, here. Matt set the cookie tin down at his feet and nudged it to Frog with his toe. She peered down her nose at it, then looked back at Matt, thick eyebrows raised. We've no need for ginger, snapped Brown. We're here to discuss business. He turned to Willowy Woman with an expression of desperation, and she rolled her eyes, set down her knitting, and took the box from Frog. When the youngest woman, while the youngest woman worked to cut the duct tape free from the box with a pair of sewing scissors, Frog continued. You have no doubt noticed that your peach trees are in bloom. Before you thank us, and you truly ought to thank us, we have one more request. He didn't hesitate. Anything. We're very hungry out here, you know, the willowy woman said with a smile. We get the odd buzzards, but we'd like something with a little more meat. Matt stared at her. He looked down between her, Frog, and not Lorene, all of them smiling kindly at him. What kind of something? We were thinking a dog. Not Lorene said. Frog added, You have some to spare. You haven't even named them, have you? The willowy woman said in her quiet, mothy voice. He stared at her. He had been thinking just that. We only need one, she said. He stood in the half-twilight of the camp, listening to the scuttling legs above him. Even here in the thick pecan groves, he could smell the thick perfume of the peach blossoms. He swallowed. He thought of the dogs he kept that all slept outside unless it rained, and all went aimless. I'll see what I could do, he said, and the willowy woman clapped with delight. In June, the peaches were ripe. The branches of the trees creaked from the weight of the fruit with every hot summer breeze. Matthias Brown went around his days humming cheerfully, picking peach after peach. He had to hire help for the season to get the fruit in before it spoiled, but it was the happiest he'd ever been to write a paycheck. 
and the food distributor's truck was on its way to pick up the first load of peaches when Matt thought to try one for himself. He stood at the kitchen window with a knife, staring absently out his cracked kitchen window, and sliced through the soft flesh of the peach, juice dribbling down his hands as he did. He slid the slice carefully into his mouth and closed his eyes. A sense of blissful reverence washed over him as the fruit dissolved in his mouth like spun sugar. It was perfectly sweet, not overpowering, but not understated. Just a peach, but a perfect peach. He took half an hour to eat the whole thing, reveling in ev- He took half an hour to eat the whole thing, reveling in every bite. He was left holding nothing but the pit. Shit, he mumbled. He held his breath as he examined the gray, perfectly smooth seed, with a few pieces of red flesh still clinging to it. He turned it over in his hands a few times and ran his thumb over the polished surface. It was springy, and when he squeezed it, he met with only a little resistance. His hands were shaking. He took the knife he used to cut the peach and held it gently to the surface of the seed. With a deep breath, he plunged the tip into the flesh and pulled down, opening the pit. Hundreds of tiny spiders pulled out of the wound, and Matt yelped, dropping the pit, dropping the sack, into the sink along with the knife. He turned the sink on and plunged his hand under the scalding water, desperate to get the sticky peach juice and the feeling of the minuscule spiders off his hands. He let the water run the egg sack into the drain, and when he was sure he was clean, he flicked on the garbage disposal. He let the sound of the running blades drown out his labored breath for a while. His legs suddenly felt like he couldn't support his weight, like his 180 pounds was the weight of the world. 180 pounds, plus the weight of the peach. He gagged on the thought, and then he was retching into the sink, purging his body of the fruit he'd swallowed with joy mere moments ago. He spat the last of his sick into the sink and turned off the garbage disposal. He stared into the drain for a long time. The truck was coming to pick up his peaches in the morning. He had the night to get rid of the thousands of peaches currently sitting on the land. It was the first successful harvest he had in six years. His were the first real peaches in the county in four years. The golden light catched the peach trees in a silhouette, the orange sunlight shining brightly behind them. Matthias Brown thought about great-great-great-great-grandpa Brown's peach farm. He thought about the suburban families who used to visit the Brown family farms. They brought their pets sometimes. He thought that next year he would have to get the three women a fatter one, that this one must have been too skinny, that if he had found them a fatter one, his harvest would have been full of perfect peaches with perfect, hard, chestnut-colored pits. His eyes drifted to the crack in the window. He stared at it until the sun set, and he was left standing in the darkening kitchen, his mouth still tasting of vomit. He would be coming into money soon. He decided he would have to replace the glass. Thank you, from me and the author, for listening to this story. Check out our website for the text version of the story and exclusive content in our blog. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Undergraduates and Published on iTunes. We really appreciate it.